Today on the podcast, we have Executive Director of Pushkin House, Clem Cecil, in conversation with Alexis Perry, author of the winning book of the 2018 Pushkin House Book Prize, The War Within, Diaries from the Siege of Leningrad. From the heart of Bloomsbury, London, welcome to the Pushkin House podcast. Good afternoon, Alexis. Good afternoon. Um, great to see you in Pushkin House. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. And how are you feeling after the dinner last night? And I'm still a little <laughs> bit shocked, to be honest. <laughs> Were you expecting to win the prize? I was not expecting to win the prize. No, not with a group of uh, really stellar authors and scholars that were shortlisted. So I was just delighted to be there and be included. So, no, winning was a complete shock. <laughs> it's been a very... Um, profound experience reading your book. Would you mind just putting us in the historical context of the blockade itself? Sure. So the blockade is, um, uh, and the battle for Leningrad, of which the blockade was sort of the centerpiece, was one of the longest land battles uh, in the history of the Second World War, over a thousand days long. Um, And the siege itself lasted just under 900 days. And at that time, it was the longest siege uh, in history, in modern history, longest siege since biblical times. Um, And what created the siege situation was the surrounding of the city, uh, mostly by German troops, but also Finnish troops um, who surrounded it uh, on almost completely, um, except for this um, water passage that was over Lake Ladaga. So the city begins to be encircled um, in the summer of 1941. Um, by the end of August, it's cut off um, from any from the last railway ties it had to the rest of the Soviet Union. And by September, it was bombarded um, for uh, very intensely, um, some points up to eight, 12 hours at a time straight. Um, and the two methods really of, of that were used by the encircling troops uh, were intense bombardment and shelling and then starvation as a way to force the city into surrender and very famously the city never surrendered. And your book focuses on the diaries of some 125 blockadniki as people living in the blockade were called. Yes. Why did you decide to look at the diaries specifically and is that is was finding the diaries or reading the diaries, was that what led you to the subject matter or were you you already looking at the blockade? That's a great question. I think it was a little bit of both. So I um, spent a lot of time in St. Petersburg. Um, When I was learning Russian, it was the first place that I went uh, in Russia and I made friends there and fell in love with the city. So I knew a lot about the blockade just by being in the city uh, and inhabiting the space because the history of the siege is still very... Um, visible on the landscape of the city and uh, very much at the forefront of the minds of the of the, the residents. So I was already interested in the blockade and I was very interested in life writing and practices of life writing in general. So I brought those interests with me uh, to, uh, I, I suppose, to the topic, but I didn't quite know um, that this was going to be a book about diaries. Um, I didn't, first of all, know that so many diaries existed, so I planned to do a project that would deal with a wide variety of sources. 
And then it wasn't until I discovered that there was not only a, a, quite a corpus of diaries, but that there was a deliberate effort to um, recruit Leningraders to keep diaries on the part of the, the party organization, but then also other historical organizations in the city that I decided that there was something special about this genre. It was singled out for a reason, and it was something I wanted to focus on. Um, in addition to that, the, the siege is, a, is such a well-known topic, and there's so many books about the siege, and, uh, and really incredible research that had already been done, particularly about um, the way that the city was operated, uh, about the rules and regulations, about um, the, level, the, the extent of the devastation and the suffering of the population, about the defense, so about a, a wide variety of topics. And I think what I what still eluded me and maybe uh, eludes many of us, um, uh, even, even to this point, having already written the book, I'm still trying to fully understand what it was like for people to endure it. Um, and especially, you know, what kinds of thoughts haunted the minds of the residents, especially at moments when they were confronting their own deaths. Um, and that, that was, I think, one of the driving questions behind this project. So I chose the diary as well because I felt like it's, it, it didn't give me full access to that, answering that question, because one never really knows what, what people are thinking, but to see what people wrote down was kind of a proxy to get there. It gave me at least one, one way to approach that issue. And so I think there was a combination of those factors that led me to this project. The way you explore certain issues that come up um, help us understand the humanity in a way that a straight history book I don't think does. Mm. And um, that is um, in incredibly powerful. I think um, one thing that really just floored me while doing this work and I'm still overcome by is that a group of people who are fighting against the most inhumane conditions uh, almost imaginable. Uh, in that moment, what we see expressed is sort of um, uh, the beauty and resilience of humanity in its purest form. And so they kind of undertook the most human of, of occupations and pastimes, which is to contemplate the meaning of their lives, the lives of others, uh, to search for uh, to try and make sense of and, and, and search for meaning in those experiences, to find sense in the senseless kind of violence, uh, which is really the most, the ultimate expression, I think, of humanity, uh, despite the fact that they were facing these most inhumane conditions. And uh, it's just astonishing. I, I was talking to someone just recently thinking, I know I don't certainly wouldn't claim to have an, uh, one ounce of the bravery or the resilience uh, or the insight that these that these individuals had. So I really wanted to bring that to light. Well, I must say it seems to me very brave to have um, to have lived with this material for a long time because I can imagine it. Well, I mean, it, it's reading the book is um, deeply um, moving and sort of shape. I found you know it shook me up. But um, writing it, I imagine, you know, all the more so you wrote it over a long time. So I, yes. Um, so thank you for, for that, because um, we can all benefit from reading this book. 
we had, uh, last year, as you know, was the 100th anniversary of the revolution, and here we had a pavilion on Bloomsbury Square mm-hmm. that was made by an architect whose grandfather was in the blockade. He, he's called Alexander Brodsky. His grandfather was in, in the blockade, and he wrote a diary. And um, after the blockade ended, um, of course, the authorities then clamped down on diary writing. And so even though there'd been a phase of encouraging it, it was then he was actually sent to the Gulag for writing this diary. And then he lived at the 101st kilometre outside Moscow. And that's why we had this pavilion, which was called 101st kilometre. And it was dedicated to poets um, of that period. So it's interesting that this issue is coming up again, kind of within our work at Pushkin House. Yes. Um, as if these voices are becoming heard again. It's kind of like time to hear the voices. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's part of the personal histories of some uh, Russians working today, like this artist, architect, Alexander Brodsky. Um, I don't know if um, you want to talk about um, why it was that the authorities clamped down on the diaries afterwards. Well, it's it's a complicated issue because it's part of a larger um, political shift that takes place, and and it has fallen under the term of the the Leningradskaya Dila, the Leningrad affair, um, and there had multiple causes. Some of things were directly uh, Leningrad was directly involved. Some of the issues Leningrad was not, uh, and there are scholars who are working on this complex period. Um, and explore it from all of its different angles, including its multiple causes. Um, so some of the causes include a sort of power shift among members of the Central Committee, for example, um, patronage networks, the rise of Andrei Zhdanov, who was the party boss of Leningrad during the siege, uh, and his rivalries with other, other um, high-ranking Bolsheviks in the Central Committee. So those are some of the causes, but one of the major effects of this was the, um, the claim after the war that, uh, or the concern after the war that um, that Leningrad shouldn't derive a special sense of victim victimization or special sense of authority uh, by virtue of their suffering during the war, and not just Leningrad, that cities, ethnic groups, populations that had suffered inordinately during the Second World War shouldn't use that as any uh, as, a, as a basis from which to um, assert their own causes or to challenge the authorities. And there was a great deal of concern in general about instability in Soviet society after the war because the population had been so uprooted because large segments of it had lived under German occupation uh, or they had lived outside of the reach of the Kremlin as in the case of Leningrad. So it's a much bigger issue um, than these diaries, but of course the diaries get caught up in this. And one of the ways that this um, these political concerns assert themselves is to try to put parameters on the narratives that are being told about the war, uh, including a more narrow model of heroism, I would say. Um, And so not only do they stop the campaign to collect diaries, but other initiatives, commemorative initiatives, including the museum to commemorate the blockade that is also closed, um, and books that had been published using some of the diary materials, but mostly others, uh, but had been published at the, towards the end of the war, 1944, 1945. Many of those volumes are also taken off the shelves and removed from circulation. So we can see uh, in a variety of ways that the, the range of what, of what was permissible to say starts to narrow. 
Uh, and so the diaries are, are really a victim of that, of those circumstances. They don't get rid of them, they keep them, but they stop processing them and then the idea of using them as a basis for official histories of the siege disappears. And what, what happened to a lot of the people who you've been writing, who you've been looking at? What happened to them after? So the, most, okay. you know, unfortunately, I don't know in a lot of cases. Uh, not, I don't even know from these texts how many people survived. In some cases, I know if they survived or not, and, and certainly when there are diaries, uh, uh, or diaries that I got to know through their descendants, through their families, I know their stories. But I don't know in every case. Um, but in, for the most part, the diaries that I know of, um, whose stories I know didn't suffer for the diaries that they wrote. Um, those who tried to get their diaries published um, had to work within certain parameters and, and that included editing their diaries. Um, I would add on that point that uh, I compared the, in many cases, published versions of diaries with their unpublished versions and what I noticed was that mostly people just took things out. So they didn't add or invent, they just removed uh, for the most part. So, and that also has um, transform their experiences and their stories from something that's this multifaceted, very complicated, emotionally, psychologically conflicted, often to something that was much more streamlined, uh, and place the emphasis in certain in certain areas. So, um, so I don't know of cases where these diaries were penalized or they suffered uh, because of what they wrote, um, but certainly those who did want their stories to be heard had to make certain compromises. Um, and I would also finally add that some of the diaries were not, uh, that were not part of this party collection were given over in the, in the post-Soviet period, so kept within the family and then donated after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and that's very true for the collections that are held by museums. Mm -hmm. So that story is a little bit different. How did people cope when the siege was lifted? It's interesting. It was. Um, I talk about this a little bit at the end of the book. For some people, it was traumatic and confusing at first. They were thrilled to have the siege lifted, but it. Uh, there, there were two key moments. There's a moment when the encirclement of the city is broken open. That happens in early 1943, and then there's the complete lifting of the siege, which happened a full year later in 1944, and. When the first break happens, many Leningraders welcome this as essentially the end of the siege. And they get that message very strongly from friends and neighbors and even the local media. And then, of course, they have a whole other year of being bombarded, shelled, and suffering from a lack of food. And so when the, when the end of the siege finally comes, most of them are a little more cautious before they celebrate. Um, but they do. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a tremendous uh, release and it's a tremendous victory and that's something that shouldn't be, uh, that these stories I think uh, help to support rather than to negate, that it really was a tremendous victory for people. But you know, ends of wars are also tragic in their own way. There were some very um, strained reunions of far-flung family members. There was the discovery that loved ones had, had passed on People lost property, they lost their apartments. Those who had been evacuated had trouble returning to the city. And, and this is not just Leningrad, this is all over the Soviet Union. So within the victory, there was a lot of personal tragedy and hardship that came with it. Yes, just as you talk about the siege body of people, the body of the city changed too. So in a way, it was unrecognizable to some people from the bombing and losing apartments yes. and whatever it might have been. Yes. Right. So it was a kind of different city 
with probably a different atmosphere. Yes, and there were many new residents in Leningrad. Uh, many uh, soldiers, for example, were, were uh, new arrivals. Those who had been at the Leningrad front often tried to stay in the city. So you had um, a new population there. And it was, uh, this is not my own research, this is the research of people like Steve Maddox, but uh, there was a lot of debate about how to rebuild Leningrad, and should it be rebuilt as a new Soviet city, or should it be rebuilt to resemble the old Petersburg Leningrad? And um, during the siege, and as a result of the siege, there was a, a sort of treasuring of the heritage of the city as St. Petersburg. And so, um, the ultimate decision was to rebuild the city in a way that resembled the old historic St. Petersburg uh, and many of the new wartime habits, including using old imperial names for major streets in the city, those, are, those streets were officially changed, their names were officially changed by the party. So, uh, and that was in response to what people were already doing in, in practice. So there is a way that um, with the Leningrad victory, you also have a revival of St. Petersburg, uh, in a way, and the two melding together, the Leningrad uh, legacy and the St. Petersburg legacy. That's very interesting. And um, finally, are there any diaries that have stuck with you particularly, any voices? Absolutely. I, I think of their stories a lot, and I, I can be sort of haunted by them. I think that um, the children's diaries are really so powerful um, and they're the simplest t in terms of text but uh, but sometimes they're the most poignant and so I think of those I think of those the most often um, and I think of someone who I devote a great deal of time up to in the book I think of Elena Muchina who uh, was this extraordinary 16 year old 17 year old uh, who undertook these massive literary projects in her diary. Um, and at the time when she was uh, really just utterly despaired, that she, when she had been orphaned, she lost her mother, she lost uh, her, her grandmother, grandmotherly figure, she was trying to evacuate unsuccessfully, she had no one, and, it's at, and how does she choose to respond? She responds by writing this novel in her diary. So for me that's just Oh, that's unforgettable, and it's just an incredibly inspirational model of how people handle such a crisis. You know, I mean, again, they're they're physically, emotionally, psychologically being degraded, and they respond in the most beautiful, most human, uh, most humanistic kind of way. Um, and so, Muhana maybe is the one I think of the most. Now, it's an incredibly hopeful story. I mean, that's the amazing thing, even though. The book goes to very dark places because these people went to very dark places. Um, it is a story of that. It is a story of the triumph of the human spirit. I think. I mean, I, that's my hope. My hope is that people who read it will take away from it that this is the, these diaries the ultimate testament to human resilience. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. It's really such an honor. <laughs> and congratulations yet again. Can't we look forward to seeing more of your writing? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Best of luck with everything. You've been listening to the Pushkin House podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. The War Within by Alexis Perry, including all other shortlisted books, are available to purchase from the Pushkin House bookshop. Thank you, and until next time on the Pushkin House podcast. <laughs>